Hi, everybody. This is What's Going On in the Garden. A show where we talk about what's going on in the garden. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> hey, old river. What? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Are you, um, I, well, I know this, but how do you feel about all the snow we're getting? I don't know if I've talked about this already or not, but we got a lot, a lot, a lot of like snow. Like a foot. Oh, it was only a foot. First of all, it was more than a foot, but don't act like that's a small amount of snow. <laughs> but the good news is that it is melting. We've had warmer weather since all the snow fell. It snows here like every day, but it has been warmer of late. And so the snow that was piled up has started to melt. So yep. spring is coming. We'll have snowdrops in a few weeks, probably. Uh, okay. No, we will. Okay. Once that's that Galanthus, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well... I am very happy that I think spring is coming, and so I'm trying <laughs> this is, to. This to is remind. like, this is like when we lived in Virginia, and I thought that fall was going to come in September. <laughs> yeah, that was a, so a rough spring summer. is coming. But, that's, but remember, it still snows in spring. You need to shut your mouth. Well, this week we're going to talk a bit about the environment and gardening in the environment. So you came up with this topic, and what is it that you really want to discuss? Well, I started thinking about this. Honestly, I was giving a talk to a group a while ago and talking about cool plants I liked, and someone asked me, why do you feel comfortable growing non-native plants? And I've been thinking about it a lot since. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, I, it's controversial, and it's complex, and I don't have like an answer necessarily, but I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the issues um, discuss them together, maybe help think a little bit more about what I do think about that and, and hear from other people. Cause I do think there's a lot of moving parts and different factors. Um, I don't think it's a simple thing. And so, yeah, I hope it's not like, and this is what you should think about native plants or gardening for pollinators or fertilizers or pesticides or any of that kind of stuff, but more just like a discussion about some of the issues and some of the things we can be doing in our gardens to keep that in mind. So we're, we're aiming for, dissection and discussion of complicated and nuanced topics rather than some sort of prescriptive or dogmatic list of things that you must do. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And maximum controversy. So no, <laughs> <laughs> we know how to get those clicks. I guess let's dive in then. So we should start with a kind of positive framing of the good things you can do to help the environment and to garden in an eco-conscious way. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. And I think it's where gardening is kind of unusual. I feel like usually when we talk about the environment, it's about like not doing bad things. It's like, don't buy so much plastic, don't do bad things. But I think gardening is a space where we actually can do positive things, which I feel like is really kind of exciting um, and makes it different than a lot of, I think, the other discussions about like environmentalism. Okay. So what are the good things that you can do? <laughs> well, I think the first thing that you can do is that you can make habitat in your garden, you, you can make it a space that is habitat for insects and then insects are often the basis of, of a big complex food chain for lots of birds and other wildlife. So you can take, if your you know, space that you have or your gardening on start off as grass, you can fill that with perennials, with flowers and make it a really rich, diverse habitat for a lot of insects and other wildlife. So what kind of plants would you grow to attract which kinds of 
pollinators? Well, that's that's a like a long question. I think the sh there's like a short answer is diversity is the best. The more diversity of types of plants, bloom times, types of flowers, flower colors that you have, the more diversity of insects you're going to provide homes for. So I should just rip everything out and fill it with hostas? Yeah, exactly. Not that. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's so like when you have, you know, many different insects have different relationships with different plants and different bloom times can help you create the most, you know, diverse ecosystem. And then the more native plants is always, I think, always a good thing, um, leaning more on those because those may be species that have specific relationships with the insects that are native to your area. What kind of insects are we talking about? Well, we can start from, you know, the, the charismatic bees, obviously the pollinators that everybody loves. Are they like dancing in the aisles? <laughs> you know that's near and dear to my <laughs> experience. Dancing in the aisles. Oh, charismatic and charismatic creatures. Keep up, keep okay, up. Come on. I was like, <laughs> um, no, there's like a whole thing in environmentalism where there's like pandas and tigers and, and dolphins oh that are like the charismatic animals that people care about. And they're like the entry to caring about whole ecosystems. And for insects, it's like butterflies and honeybees are the ones people care about. And then also, you need to then, then, you know, the beetles and the worms and the grubs and everything else are John also. Paul George. I'm on a roll today with the dad jokes. Oh, gosh. Um, well, okay. Legit question. Yeah. Why do I care if there are butterflies and bees in my garden? Yeah, that's a good... I mean, I guess that's the question. Like, why do we care about the environment at all? Well, we care about the environment because I want to have, you know, clean air and fresh water. And I want, you know, the earth to sustain itself. Yeah. Right? But how do butterflies and bees play into that? Why is that something I should care about? Well, I, so I have two reactions to that. Okay. One is I feel like biodiversity and life is valuable in its own right. And I don't think I need to, for me, I don't need to justify why I want butterflies in the world. Butterflies are beautiful and I, they're fascinating. And okay. that, that diversity of life is a, like a tragic thing to destroy and not have in the world, whether it helps me or not like in most like, so I feel like they talk about things like ecosystem services and the ways that healthy ecosystems clean water and manage stormwater runoff and pollinators help us produce food crops and all those things. They are really integral right. to right. our functioning world. Um, but it also feels like reducing biodiversity to some kind of capitalist like, oh, it's worth this much money. I like a butterfly is not worth amount of money to me. I feel like that's kind of a a kind of a sad way to see the world like well we need a healthy ecosystem so it can filter stormwater runoff is like yes that's important and one and, and critical but also like such a sad way to approach butterflies yeah and i know that's how you think about about beauty i wasn't really thinking in terms of money i was just thinking if we want the environment to be as healthy as it can be for you know many many reasons including our own right survival and thriving why is it that we care particularly about butterflies and bees? Because I got to tell you, I think Dame's Rocket is beautiful. Right. But isn't it an invasive weed? Yes. Yeah, so that's, well, that's, so a, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The invasive species question is a whole other thing. Insects are pretty foundational to the functioning of the ecosystem. So they pollinate, which means they're allowing plants to produce seeds and create and, and, you know, reproduce and spread. Um, they're also, insects are a major food source for birds which are okay. the next layer of the ecosystem. So if you don't have any caterpillars, then you're not going to have songbirds and all the other birds, which also eat 
berries and spread seeds and are really important in terms of helping plants move around. I actually just saw there was a study recently that they were saying that there was a concern of songbird populations being necessary for plants to adapt to climate change because songbirds are how plants move by carrying their seeds and plants are going to need to move to adapt to a changing environment. So plants are like the base level that feeds everything else in the ecosystem. So having healthy plants that then feed the insects, that feed the birds, that then feed the larger predators, it's kind of the, the really foundational thing. And also the more diverse an ecosystem is, the more resilient it is. So there's things like new diseases coming in, new pests that may kill specific trees or specific species. And if we have a very diverse ecosystem with lots of species, it's going to be more robust to be able to respond to those changes, respond to climate change, keep thriving because we have lots of diversity that can interact with these new challenges of minimal, you know, if you just have a few species and one of them can't survive in a warming world, then that could really collapse very easily. So in general, if you grow more native plants, which is a general guideline you can use wherever you are, mm -hmm. then it's going to promote pollinators, which is which are really integral to the health of the whole ecosystem of which you yourself are a part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it can be really, I there's like, it can be really powerful. I think there's like, if you think about trying to save tigers or something, that takes sure. a lot of land. But think insects, you can have a really big impact in a really small area. And I, there was a study, this was, I don't know, it was probably t close to five or 10 years ago now, where they're looking at bumblebee diversity in Michigan, and they sampled all these different sites. And they found that nature preserves and vacant lots in Detroit had the same level of diversity of bumblebees. Hmm. And like, like well-maintained neighborhoods where people were spraying insecticides had less than these vacant lots. But those lots, just by not having insecticides, letting a mixture of native plants and non-native plants grow and bloom, were really great habitat for bumblebees. And so I think that can be really, I feel like it's cool because it's something that you can do on a small space. If you have access to a little piece of land, you can make great habitat for bumblebees and, and let them thrive, whereas it's a little harder for you individually to save a whale you know, that has to happen on a larger scale. Yeah, I really like the idea of starting where you are. I mean, in your yard or even on your balcony or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or just in your community, because I mean, you and I come to this idea from very different places, because I'm I'm now thinking about ecofeminism and posthumanist philosophy. <laughs> but humans are not removed from nature. They right. are part of all of the ecological relationships that we you know, observe, we are integral to those. That's why you can think about like a vacant lot in Detroit as an ecosystem. Yeah. But even in cities, when you have raccoons and pigeons and, you know, all these other things, you know, there's, there's an ecosystem right around you that you can engage with in a more ethical and sustainable way, wherever you are, and you're a part of it. Yeah. yeah and I think that's a really powerful thing. And I think it helps you think differently, or at least me, I should say, helps me think differently about environmental, environmentalism writ large because I do feel like part of an ecosystem, I have a love for it if it's, you know, something that enriches my life in lots of ways. And so like on the micro level, I can support my local ecosystem, but I think it also helps me at least feel more connected to the broader ecosystem and all the things I want to do on a larger scale to help the global environment thrive. Um, because I feel like I have that personal connection. Like I said, I'm not removed from it. This is I am one of the factors in this local ecosystem that's helping things thrive or hurting them, depending on my, the choices I make. Do you have any resources or tips for people to find out 
which plants are native or how to grow native plants? There's a website that I will put in the show notes. I'm blanking on the name, but it's really fa fantastic that you can put in your location or you can search by plant or by insect, but you can look at your location and they will give you the, the insects that are hosted by that specific plant, or you can search for your area and look for the species that host the different types of things. So they will say, you know, in your region, you say, well, what's going to support the most caterpillars? And it'll, usually it's oak trees, actually, or whatever. And you can look and see what species of plants in your area have relationships with local insects, which can be really helpful, too, if you're thinking about your neighborhood as your local ecosystem. If it's a new development, probably there's no oak trees. And oak trees are really foundational plant trees species for a lot of different butterflies. And so maybe if there's no oaks in your neighborhood, you might want to plant one. If there's a whole oak forest, then maybe that's, you know, might want to look for something else to kind of find ways to help support insects that are not being supported in your local neighborhood. It goes along with a general rule of gardening that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is to grow things that work in your climate. Native plants seems like a pretty easy and intuitive way to make that happen. Yes. I mean, usually, though, I think there's like a weird thing where, especially if you're in a very urban area, the urban landscape has changed your uh, local climate. Okay. So the urban heat island is a big thing, just all the concrete, all the heating of buildings. Um, so if you think like, I'm like New York City or whatever, it was a, a forest. Now it's this big city. It's a very different. And so I have friends who, uh, uh, or a woman who wrote an article for the Rock Garden Quarterly who does rooftop gardening in New York City. And it's like, it's a very different habitat than what was there before. So you do need to be aware of sometimes like maybe that the, the what was native before this was developed, we may have changed it so radically that you're going to have to think beyond what this was before your house was there, depending on how built up. And of course, with climate change, that may be happening even more and more. Well, another thing that you said you could do is to restore degraded soils. So often, especially if you're in an urban area, the sites can be pretty damaged. The construction can compact soils. Sometimes in construction, they strip off the topsoil and to sell somewhere else. And so you, there's no topsoil left. If there was, you know, construction, the concrete can change the pH of soil. So often that process of development can really destroy the, the soils. And so the process of gardening, which is usually like bringing in compost and mulch, um, you know, trying to adjust the pH, all those kinds of things can help that soil thrive again and support a wider range of plants that again can support, you know, a wider range of insects and other things in the environment. So I do think it can be a cool thing um, where we can, yeah, we can be like a healing process of trying to help, help, help the, the soil support life again, rather than being destroyed. Okay. And you also mentioned preserving endangered species. So beyond growing native plants, how can we make this happen? Well, that's like an, an interesting thing that I've been thinking about a little bit lately, um, that there are plenty of species of plants that only exist that we know of now in cultivation. There's species of tulips that were collected, you know, seed collected from the wild, you know, however many decades ago and have not been found in the wild again. And they, so they exist solely in gardens. Um, those are kind of the extreme cases, though there's surprising number of them. Um, <clears throat> But it is, it can be also if you're growing, you know, even if it's not something that's literally doesn't exist in the wild anymore, gardens can be a, a place to, to grow plants if their native habitat is being just destroyed. Well, to me, it sounds like if you do all those positive things, you're going to be pretty busy. You're going to be uh, 
too uh, occupied to do a lot of bad things, <laughs> but maybe we should at least talk about things that you should avoid doing in the garden if you care about biodiversity and being eco-conscious. What are those things? Well, I think the number one thing is got to be pesticides, specifically insecticides. Um, when we're gardening, we don't like the caterpillars eating our plant leaves and making holes in the plants, of course, but those very caterpillars are what the chickadees are feeding to their babies. Um, so there's uh, insecticides are can be really like one of the most problematic things that we are kind of do routinely in home gardens um, because they kill the insects that then are the next where the the next level of the ecosystem. I feel like it's talked a lot about pollinators specifically and bees, which of course you know we said bees are what everyone cares about, but it, again cat caterpillars and other insects are also really important for the ecosystem. Um, and I think there's also sometimes a misperception that organic insecticides are like magically better and they can be, but at some point, if it's a chemical, whether it's organic or synthetic that kills insects, then you're still killing insects that the birds would want to eat. Um, well, that's that whole thing that people think chemicals don't exist in nature. Right, right. right? And like I said before, it's not like nature is some pristine virgin, you know, um, landscape or system from which humans are removed we're part of it and chemicals certainly there are synthetic chemicals but chemicals exist in nature too right and and insecticidal chemicals and you know so neem oil and bt or some of these common ones are sold as organic insecticides and many of them are less toxic and they might be better choices than some of the synthetic uh, insecticides because they do break down faster. But I really, you know, really, if you're trying to help your garden be part of the local ecosystem, using pesticides, not at all or minimally and very targeted is always going to be the best case. And by targeted, I mean, don't spray something that's going to kill everything. If I have a terrible problem right now with a specific pest, try to do something that's going to control those Japanese beetles and nothing else rather than you know, the longer the list of things that that insecticide kills, the more potentially disruptive it is to your local ecosystem. Yeah, so definitely, I don't think if you have tons of insect pests, it's not like you just have to sit back and say, well, I can't do anything. But going out and picking them off with your hands or using a physical barrier or a very targeted treatment that's going to attack that specific pest is always going to be the better choice than hosing everything down with a broad spectrum insecticide that's just going to kill all of the insects, including the ones that were just peacefully living in the leaves and not, not hurting anybody. Right. Yeah. And we'll probably talk more about specific things when we discuss a particular plant and its pests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but that's some good general guidance. Yeah. I think right? the mo most general guidance is like avoid it. And then if you do have to do it, try to find something that is, that's specific to that specific pest, find out what that pest is, identify it and find a treatment targeted at that specific pest rather than, you know, a broad spectrum something. Okay. What about fertilizer? Yeah, fertilizer is another big one. Um, and surprisingly, I think like lawn fertilizer is a huge problem. And one of the biggest problems with fertilizer is in storms, the fertilizer runs off into rivers and then goes out into uh, waterways. And so we get like dead zones in the Great Lakes and the Gulf of Mexico and you know these other water spaces where the fertilizer causes algae blooms that then decompose and starve the water of oxygen and kill fish. And it can be a really big problem. Um, like Toledo, sometimes their water is poisoned because they get it out of the Great Lakes. And if there's too much fertilizer runoff, they can't 
they can't drink their water. Um, it's amazing <laughs> to me how some, I mean, certainly it's like when many individuals make the choices, the effect is amplified, but you can make these small choices right where you are. Yeah. Right. That will have impact. Totally. Totally. Like way down, like way up the food chain or, or way down the water system. Yeah. Somewhere down in the Gulf of Mexico, right. your fertilizer choices, if you're in like the Mississippi watershed, which is a huge portion of the country, you, you, what you're doing in your yard is like being felt in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and I think again, there's a thing where there's like this idea that organic is magically safe mm -hmm. and organic fertilizers often do break down more slowly. So they're less likely to leach out, but the biggest thing with fertilizer is not using too much. The more you're putting down, the more likely that is to leach out of your soil into waterways. So I think we've probably talked about this before. I say this all the time is get a soil test. Right. Um, get a soil test, get a soil test, because then you know what nutrients your soil needs and what it doesn't, and you can apply the right amount. And and applying excess is just always going to be, it's not going to help your plants grow. It is going to poison water. You're going to waste money. It's just a, a lose, lose, lose situation. Well, one thing that I like about your books, he writes books, if you don't know, <laughs> check those out, is that you emphasize getting a soil test and then responding accordingly. Because I've seen a lot of books and YouTube channels that kind of say, spread this chemical. <laughs> right, like, right. You don't know if you need that or not. I, and, I, it's, and I get the like the appeal of that answer. What fertilizer do I need? Sure. Here's general purpose tomato fertilizer. That's the easy answer. Um, and But it's often, unfortunately, not the right answer. I th the analogy I use is like salting food like if you're cooking something until you taste it you don't need to know if it needs salt or not i don't like you looking at me when you say that <laughs> he always wants more salt um but and and like salt in a food too much you know you want the right amounts for it to taste good but right. too much is is terrible and too little is not as good is it though <laughs> um and you just can't magically know you like you have to test and see whether your soil needs it you can't magically know whether it needs what kind of fertilizer? And then you're putting down some chemical that's not going to help your plants grow. Can probably have a negative effect if there's too much. No, no, of maybe it. they're all and going to be hazardous. Yeah. Fertilizers for are pretty much and... all toxic at too high concentrations, and so it's just yeah. So just get a soil test and then follow that, and you your plants will thrive, and you'll protect the environment and save money. It's it's always great. Okay, well, another thing that you can do if you're trying or or that you can avoid, we're saying, if you want to garden in an eco-conscious way, is invasive species to avoid them yes so here you're coming for me and my dame's rocket <laughs> yeah i mean invasive species i have complex thoughts about this uh -oh. and maybe um and i'm gonna the internet is definitely the place to talk about complicated <laughs> nuanced thoughts i'm gonna acknowledge first off i love growing lots of unusual plants so i really like growing non-native species i love that it's really fun for me so why I, do you hate the earth well that so i'm just acknowledging my bias here which i would i really want it to be true that it's okay for me to grow species from asia in my garden because it's really fun um so i want to acknowledge that but i do think there's certainly some species that have been really that are spread out of your garden seed around move into wild landscapes my personal take controversial <laughs> is that and they say there has some evidence you know some research and evidence for this that often species moving out of our gardens and spreading into the landscape around is not as much about them invading intact habitats but 
us destroying habitats and then new species moving in. So you see a lot of invasive species. If you drive up and down highways, you'll see a lot of invasive species. Uh, cities have a lot of invasive species. But the fundamental problem you're saying is that a highway disrupted that ecosystem yeah. and created a space for that species to come in. Yes. Yeah. And there, I've had some people so arguing that in some cases it may be take like vacant lots in Detroit, as we mentioned before, the there's the pH is very different. The heat, everything is very different than what Detroit was before there was a city there because of all the development. And the mix of native and non-native species that thrive there, maybe that some of these non-native species are enriching that habitat by being able to survive where the, the native woodlands would not have been able to survive. Right. Um, certainly there are some species that, you know, kudzu, and uh, Japanese knotweed and, and some of these other ones that have had some pretty serious impacts. But it does seem like a lot of them are more, uh, more a symptom than a cause. We degrade habitats and then we see these explosions of weeds. And I think focusing, because sometimes like, oh, we go in and spray herbicide on all these invasive weeds along the side of the highway. It's like, well, I think that's, that's the symptom, not the problem. We've degraded right. this habitat. Right. We've changed the soil and all this kind of stuff. And then saying, well, now we're going to cut down all these pear trees. It seems like a little, like a, a, a step, I don't know, not looking at the fundamental problem of what have we done to the soil? Why is this habitat changed so radically? Um, well, too, I, I sometimes, and I am not in any way an expert on, on this topic, but uh, kind of that idea that I, I talked about before from reading I've done in the humanities and, and social sciences, you know, it's not like there is some or origin, right, where the ecosystem was untainted. Right. You know, it's a dynamic process between human and non-human species, which is in no way to deny the effect that our postmodern way of living has had on ecosystems. But you know, uh, so Elizabeth Colbert, her book, The Sixth Extinction, she talks a lot about, you know, humans migrating hundreds of years ago, even before colonialism, had impact on these environments. So I guess sometimes I'm confused about, you know, what is what is the ideal landscape there? You know, is it something that's just pre-industrial? Is it just like pre-1950s? Is it a way that is sustainable? You know, because some invasive species it's not maybe that they exist, but that they take over everything, like you were saying right. with kudzu. So I guess I don't fully understand the the ultimate goal sometimes of the invasive species talk. Yeah, and I think part of that is because there's a lot of different people with a lot of different goals that all talking about the sense. same topic. Because I do think there's plenty of species, let's say dandelions, nobody's particularly concerned about. They're not native, they're from Europe but they pretty much only thrive in lawns and other human habitats. And so I don't know that anyone's trying to exterminate dandelions. No one's also trying to cultivate them. They just- Well, you were trying to- <laughs> Well, yes, that, yeah, me accepted. Cute pink ones. Um, okay. But then there's other species that people are very concerned about because they feel like they make a bigger impact in the, the, the ecosystem. They change dynamics of soil, nitrogen cycling, and some of these other things. Um, so I do feel like as a gardener, it can be a little bit confusing sometimes. Certainly I err on the side. Most states produce, have lists of invasive species. Sometimes they're explicitly banned from being sold. Sometimes it's just suggestions not to multiple levels of not growing those. That's a pretty easy thing to not, to not grow something on an invasive species list because there's lots of other plants to grow. Some people only want to grow plants that are native to 
North America or their specific region. And that's, I, you know, certainly that sounds great. I really like growing other plants. I think that's really fun. And so I personally do still grow non-native species. Um, but I, I don't think, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to approach that. Well, it's very brave of you to admit that. <laughs> so non-native doesn't necessarily mean invasive. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you say inva uh, avoid invasive species, you're talking about that category, not necessarily all non-native non -native species. Yeah. I mean, the okay. biggest concern is um, invasive gets used a bunch of different ways, too. Some people say invasive when they meet a plant that spreads aggressively within their garden. Um, but invasive in an ecological sense means that it's seeding out of cultivated areas into uncultivated areas. So your plants, so often you won't see it specifically in your garden because it's the birds are carrying the seeds off across the other side of the river and it's germinating there. And that's the specific problem. Um, and sometimes it seems like a lot of the time that is a, not a particularly damaging process, but our cons but it's, you know, sometimes they're spreading and potentially changing things about the environment um, and causing real damage. And there are a lot of great native plants where you are for sure. You should check that list out first because growing native plants is a great thing to do. Yes, absolutely. There's lots of beautiful native plants and often weirdly they're underappreciated in their home country. Like a lot of like trillium are a great native woodland wildflower for like North, you know, Eastern North America. Um, I almost never see them and I've seen them grown in gardens more often in Europe hmm. than in the US and I've been to Europe like twice. Wow. Um, they're much more popular there. So sometimes like we, we perceive native plants as weeds or undesirable, and there's a lot of really cool native plants to enjoy and certainly uh, add them to your garden. Another thing we can avoid if we're trying to garden in a responsible way is plastic waste. How do we do that? Yeah, well, that's, I put this on here cause I wanted to think about it. Um, but certainly when you're buying plants in plastic pots, it's like, sometimes there's a lot of plastic pots, which feels bad. Like, oh, I'm going to go buy a bunch of native plants that are all coming in plastic pots. There are um, people who are producing plants, you know, pots for plant production that are made out of like rice holes and things that are biodegradable, and which sounds great. I've seen them like at trade shows, but I've never actually seen them in the wild in a nursery, unfortunately. So uh, personally, I like to reuse what plastic pots I do buy in terms of growing other plants in them rather than trying to throw them away. So at least I can get several uses out of them before they wind up in a landfill. Um, and then I'm hoping, I would love if a nursery near me was had biodegradable pots, I would be so excited to buy those. So I'm kind of, I don't know, I wish there was a better answer there, but I think that's with plastic generally, we use so much of it it's such a terrible thing to be using, um, but there doesn't seem to be easy answers to it. Well, it could be another reason to grow plants from seed. Yeah. That cuts down on the packaging and waste. The other thing I was thinking about is maybe check with your local government, uh, because in South Bend, at least, we can get things like mulch and compost just like unloaded without all, you know, if you buy 16 plastic bags of that versus, you know, I mean, you just put it in the back of our station wagon, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. We are buying things like mulch. If yeah, in bags, if you can get a local, yeah, I love, we can get from our local environment, our community, they collect yard waste, they grind it up. I can go fill the car with it, come back, no plastic using any of that process rather than you buy a bag of mulch at the box store that was produced in Alabama and put in a plastic bag and shipped from here to there. The more you can buy locally and stuff that was produced locally, that is probably having a big impact. And in Virginia, it's maybe a, maybe a little less ideal than going to the local government here in South Bend, but we can have 
mulch or compost delivered by the yard, right? By the cubic yard, um, which didn't have any plastic waste. Um, yeah. It did have a lot of labor involved, <laughs> like, like hauling and spreading all that around their yard, but it but did we, save on we did, it was not all renewable resources. It was human manpower rather than gasoline powered yeah. well, except for the truck that delivered it but save me yeah. a couple of trips to the gym <laughs> at least if if we're gardening and we want to think about other ways to curb our carbon footprint how can we do that well i think it's probably the same like a lot of like thinking about locally buying plants that are produced locally and then again starting stuff from seed is going to make a big impact on that the more you're buying stuff that's been shipped you know from long distances that's probably the biggest carbon footprint that your gardening habit is having is the shipping of, of things. Um, but I don't know, I think also gardening can be sequestering carbon, which is kind of cool because mm -hmm. planting trees are taking carbon out of the air. The compost and mulch is carbon that you're putting into the soil and soil is a great place to store carbon. So creating healthy soils with lots of organic matter is actually sequestering carbon into the soil rather than putting it out into the air. Is um, or are GMOs something that you know your average home gardener should think about? So this is something that I've I give presentations about genetic engineering fairly regularly, and for years I was saying you can't buy GMOs; they're not being sold to you. But that is not true anymore. There's now transgenic petunias on the market that have a gene from corn in them to make their flowers orange. Um, so you'll see they, they it's like for the first time you can go out and buy a transgenic organism plant to grow in your garden um but if someone is growing tomatoes or something at home they don't have to worry about that no there's not as far as i'm aware of there's no other plants being sold to home gardeners and so we think of like transgenic corn you know all those kinds of things that usually that intellectual property is very, very closely guarded and the farmers can't buy it without signing this whole agreement about not saving seeds and doing all these other things to protect the intellectual property. So you're very unlikely to accidentally buy some transgenic corn or even if you're, you know, or whatever, um, except for that petunia, it's really not in the home market, but it is now for that petunia. And it's, it's interesting because the petunias were released and they were orange and people were buying them. This is quite a number of years ago. And then somebody realized a scientist saw them and said, hey, they, that looks like petunias that I saw in a research lab years ago and did a test and found the corn gene in them. They were not being labeled as, as transgenic. And there was a whole kerfluffle and they're pulled from the market. And now they're kind of back and no one seems to care. I was kind of surprised. I thought it was going to be a big PR nightmare. I was going to be so upset that they were buying petunias that had this corn gene in them that they didn't know about. But nobody seemed to care. And now they're back on the market and I haven't heard anybody being upset about them. So it seems it's it'd be interesting to see if we have more ornamental plants with uh, transgenic genes inserted into them, because it seems like the petunias are going over pretty smoothly. But, but for now, at least, if you're not growing orange petunias, it's probably not something you have to pay. Yeah, deal it's really not something that's really impacting your garden. Yeah. Okay. So, I guess we've talked a lot about what you should do and should not do, but we said we didn't want to make a really prescriptive and dogmatic list. We wanted to have a discussion about things to keep in mind. What is the responsibility of people who are going out to garden? You know, what what is the way to do that ethically? Do they have to think a lot about being ethical? What are your thoughts on those questions? I don't know. I think about this a lot again because somebody asked you know asked me like why do you feel comfortable growing non-native plants? And I think for me, it's gardening is this interesting thing because it's a lot of different things. 
maybe I form this thought. If you're like a, a musician, you go to a concert hall. I don't think anyone asks you why the concert hall is not a native prairie, mm -hmm. because of course you're doing art and we see that as having value. And so we dedicate space to doing that. And we try to do that in a not harming the environment way, but we're not like going to bulldoze the concert hall and, and, and plant, you know, Rebecca's. And gardening is in this weird space where it is, I think, art. It can be a beautiful art form. It also can be, like I said, we can also create great habitat. It can be restoring habitat and, and, and nurturing soils and part of the ecosystem. Um, so I feel like it's in this weird space where sometimes, I don't know, I certainly want my garden to be a healthy part of the ecosystem. I also want to let it be a place where I can create art that I'm proud of. I want it, my yard to be a beautiful part of my neighborhood that my neighbors will enjoy and, and beautifies and enriches the neighborhood. Um, I want to produce food from it, which is yet another factor. So I think there's a lot of different values and good things that come out of gardening. Um, and so I feel, and, and so it's a kind of a balancing act of like uh, the different things you would like to get out of it and trying to find the balance of wanting my garden to be beautiful and a place of the joy and happiness for me and my community, as well as good habitat for native plant for native insects as well as you know, growing native plants and finding that like a balance of all those different values that I have in the garden. Yeah, I like the idea of trying to uh, engage with and reconcile those various concerns, right? Like a pursuit of beauty and your hobby, right? Something you can be proud of while also minimizing harm and promoting good things, right? Actively doing, doing good for the ecosystem and the environment because my experience, again, not an expert, but anytime I've, not anytime, but a lot of the time when I've seen a garden that really focuses on native plants, it's like all other concerns were dropped to the side. Yeah. So you have, you know, what kind of looks like a mess. And uh, that's not the way toward uh, having widely adapted sustainable gardening practices, right? Yeah. So, so I guess... If there's a way to reconcile your desire for beauty, what you enjoy about your garden, while also keeping in mind some of these things about growing native plants and avoiding invasive species and minimizing plastic waste, then that's probably the best path forward. Um, is that what you're trying to that's say? That's what I think. Yeah, I think because I feel like sometimes I don't know. I like I feel like I want to say like gardening is not habitat restoration, which is another mm -hmm. thing like plant like restoring nat native prairies in degraded landscapes is a great thing a wonderful thing. It's also, it's not the same as what I'm trying to do in my home yard because I have all these other goals besides just being great habitat. And I do think you can do all those things together, but it doesn't have to be letting like one, you know, it doesn't have to be all about that. It can also, you know, find that balance of, you know, all those different values. Is the High Line in New York kind of an example of some of these concepts that you're talking about? I think so. I think so. It's an interesting thing because it was an abandoned elevated railway mm -hmm. line that a bunch of plants, native and non-native, had grown into and then was transformed into a garden. And it still is, I think they aim for like 60% native, which was the ratio they found when they when it was abandoned. It was like 60%, like 60, 65% native and the rest in a non-native species. And they, I think they aim for that same balance, which is mostly native plants, but including some non-native plants. And I feel like it is a great, yeah, I feel like it's a great example of that, where again, they're embracing the fact that this is New York City. It's not, it's a new ecosystem. It's a new landscape. 
and creating beauty that really draws people in and then also creating great habitat and, and, and native plants there. I think that's a really great example of that for sure. Yeah, it's a little bit of habitat restoration, but it's also, you know, about public good. Um, yeah, and also recognizing, as you said, that a lot has changed to this landscape. So even as you have some ideas and values about native plants or, or non-invasive species, you can't turn back the clock to some right. you know, you can't magical just... past when, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, for this week's segment, a plant you're digging, you wanted to talk about amaryllis. Yeah, amaryllis, the genus Hippiestrum. But the, yeah, the genus Amaryllis is actually a different plant, confusingly, but, but those big. <laughs> Y'all have got to stop with these weird, weird taxonomical it's, mishaps. Pl plant taxonomy is a mess, but we're just going <laughs> to, that's a topic for another day. But the Amaryllis, which, you know, those big, huge, big bulbs that you plant have the enormous flowers. Um, we have some blooming in the house right now. And gorgeous. Love it. So gorgeous. Uh, we bought them from our local plant so store. Unusual. The botany shop um, on clearance after after New Year's, I guess, right? Yes. Um, I was going to say a lot of times amaryllis they're sort of marketed and sold to bloom for Christmas. That's like the target time um, for them. But I much prefer them blooming in February um, because one, you can get them cheap, which is always a bonus because I am definitely cheap. But also, I feel like. In December, winter is still fun and exciting, and this, it's snow and it's Christmas. And um, but February is when you need some flowers. Definitely. <laughs> so um, I'm definitely like for stuff blooming inside, like plant your amaryllis like after New Year's, and then you're going to have them in this climate when you like you need some flowers because it's been snowing too long. So just a plug for growing, letting your amaryllis bloom later rather than earlier. Yeah, they're they're definitely beautiful. I'm happy to have them. What do you have for this week's mailbag? From the mailbag, I got a question from Liz about growing castileas. So castilea is a genus of what's called hemiparasites, native to a big stretch of like mostly the Western US, but up into Canada. Um, and they their roots attach to the roots of other plants and take- So is it like an epiphyte? No, epiphytes just sit on top of branches. Uh, they're just, okay. so they're not parasitic at all. An epiphyte just rests on a tree branch and use it as a place to grow. These are not a full parasite because they do photosynthesize and produce their own food, but they do take water and nutrients from their neighbors. Bastards. Yes. Um, <laughs> they're really cool and they're really beautiful. They have these big, big flower spikes with very showy bracts and they're really, they're really quite beautiful. Um, and you'll see them pretty much in most native grassland around the United, uh, North America, there's Castileas, and there's related genera in Europe and Asia too. Um, so they're really, really beautiful, but they're sort of notoriously hard to cultivate because they are hemiparasites. So in nature, they would germinate and then the roots grow out and attach to the roots of other plants. Um, I got this question because I'm trying to grow a bunch of them from seed, which may be a fool's errand because our climate is pretty different um, from most of the places where they grow natively. Um, but I was inspired to grow them. So, I, you know, so the question was, how do you grow these from seed? Do you need to grow them in a pot with another plant? How do you cultivate these things? I was inspired to grow them because um, there was an article in the Rock Garden Society Journal, which I'm the editor of, about growing castileas. And this, she's out in uh, Washington, Washington, Oregon, one of those, I can't remember. Um, and she said, 
I just grow them in a pot. I sow them in a pot like any other plant and grow, they don't really need a host in their first couple years of life. So growing them from seed is pretty much like growing, she was saying, I've not tried it yet. I, they're still outside getting a cold treatment. It's pretty much like growing any other perennial. And then when you plant them in the garden, she says, make it sure it's within a foot or so of another plant. And then it can get its roots out and attach to those roots and start siphoning off nutrients. Um, and the other thing that she said in her article was her experience, it seemed like the thing they most got from other plants was water. So the biggest thing is they're very, very drought tolerant in nature, but if they're not attached to a host, they're not very tolerant of drying out. So that little bit of care with watering, and she's saying they're quite easy to cultivate, so it should be mm -hmm. fun. Well, you'll have to check in again, and you can give us an update on yeah, your, I'll definitely see see how that is. yes, see how they're growing. Okay, well, I guess that about does it for our far-ranging conversation. How do you feel? I feel great. I think it was really fun. And I think, I don't know, I feel like these can be controversial topics and sometimes people get really upset about. So I, I enjoy talking kind of directly about it and not, uh, you know, I, again, I will say, like, we don't have all the answers. Definitely don't have all those figured out. And we're definitely open to hearing your thoughts and learning from you to keep the conversation going. Yeah, so definitely. You can reach out to Joseph pretty easily on social media, share any tips or thoughts you have about eco-conscious gardening. So on Patreon, he is Joseph Gardens. You can reach out to him there and you can also support the work that we're doing. Uh, on Instagram, he is at Tychonovich, T-Y-C-H-O-N as in Nancy, I-E-V as in Victor, I-C-H. <laughs> uh, you can also find him on Facebook as Joseph Tychonovich. I won't spell it again. Yeah. And it would be really helpful to us if you like the podcast, if you could rate, review, and subscribe uh, on whatever platform you're listening on, because, you know, that would help other people maybe hear about, you know, how cute Joseph is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're having a lot of fun doing this. So definitely, if you appreciate any, uh, you know, liking, subscribing, or letting your friends know about it, that would be really, really yeah, we, we totally just started it as a fun thing for us to do, and it's continued to be so. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. Well, I hope that everyone has a wonderful week. And happy gardening. Good job.